Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Not a clear glass, but it's just water. Although you might need something stronger after this. Um, we, uh, <laughs> when we give a talk on a Sunday, we'll usually have a chunk of the Bible where, which we base it on. But today's going to be slightly different uh, because I want to take a step back and question why we should even trust the Bible in the first place. Um, I don't know how many of you know or know much about this subject or know people that know lots about this subject, but I do know probably lots of people that you know have lots of questions about why we believe the Bible. And as we have friends, we have conversations with friends and work colleagues and family members, inevitably, as we speak about Christian truth, people will go, well, why do you actually read the Bible? Why do you actually believe it in the first place? And it's a really good idea to know why we do. I kind of take it on fact from other people sometimes, but it's a really good idea to be able to articulate why it is that we actually believe the Bible. And if you're sceptical as well, it's really good to research it and know whether you can actually trust it. And so I challenge you to to look into it this in, in more detail. Phil talked a couple of weeks ago about how the Bible is the number one bestseller in all of history. It's the most read book in history. It's the most translated book in history. But why do Christians call it the Word of God? And how do we know it's the word of God? There's a fantastic verse in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 and 17. And it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Psalm 119, 86 tells us this, All of your commands can be trusted. Everything in the Bible can be trusted because it comes from God. But it's one thing for the Bible to claim that it's the word of God. But how do I know? Because that sounds like a bit of a circular argument. How do I know that it's not just a bunch of fables or a bunch of stories that's put together? And this is a really legitimate, important question that we need to ask even before we start studying the Bible. Can I actually trust it? And I believe there's incredible proof and there's evidence and there's facts that we need to know to help us make up our minds. Few caveats to start with. Firstly, I'm not an expert on this subject by any means. Contrary to public opinion, I'm not a professor of ancient history, although uh, there may be rumors to the contrary. Um, And secondly, I'm gonna throw you a lot of information today. So I do apologize if it's a little bit heady. There's, um, on the back of your chairs, there's some doodle cards. I had one here, but I don't know where that's gone. my beautiful assistant, Esther. Uh, On the back of your chairs, you have one of these. Feel free to take notes because I am going to be chucking a lot of things at you today. And thirdly, um, this is just an appetite wetter. I am not going to by any means cover all of your questions about this today. And this is an invitation for you to go and research, read some books, look into this in a a bit more detail because there's some incredible resources out there. I've just finished reading a book called uh, Why Trust the Bible? Answers to 10 Questions, written by Amy or Ewing. It's a fantastic resource. And there's loads of others as well. So if you want to know more, 
uh, please ask me for some recommendations. So today I'm going to cover very briefly seven reasons why I believe we can trust the Bible. So are you all ready? Great, because it's going to be a ride. Okay, first of all, um, I believe it is historically accurate. And this is what I want to focus on the most today. I want us to think a little bit about the trustworthiness of the Bible as a record of history. Now, when we ask the question about ancient writings, there are a number of questions that we need to ask that help us determine whether we can actually trust that ancient writing or not. And these questions are, how many copies do we have of something? Um, Can we have that slide, actually, Eddie? How many copies we have of something? How close are those copies in time to the original? And how close was the original from the events it records? Who knows what Chinese Whispers is? Anyone know what Chinese Whispers is? I think apparently in America it's called the telephone game. Um, You know, when one person has a story and then they pass it on to the next person and they pass it on to the next person and it gets distorted by the end of it. So one person starts out with Mrs. Patterson took a dog and went to the pub. Um, and then the next person repeats it and repeats it and repeats it, and then they end up having something like, my grandma has two toes and lives in China. Or um, people think that the Bible that we have, that this Bible um, is a bit like that, that it's been distorted and it's just been passed down and passed down and distorted all the way through to the present day. But it's not actually true when it comes to the Bible. So take Matthew's Gospel, for instance. The first copy was written about 60 in the 60s or 70s, for instance, in the first century, so only 30 or 40 years after Jesus has died. And then a copy is made at that point. And what some people think is that that happened over and over again, and that every time somebody copied it, it changed significantly. But the thing is with our modern English Bibles is that whether they're on, the pa- on paper or on your phone, we don't have to go back like to the 19th century or the 18th century to find out whether it was accurate or not. We can actually go right back to the beginning and compare what we have today with really early editions. And so uh, there's, there's, we've got loads of copies of them as well. So the whole Chinese whisper thing is a little bit of a myth. Because we can go back and compare the 21st century versions right back to copies of the second, third, and fourth editions. And there's a whole scholarship around this. So our English Bibles aren't copies just from a couple of 100 years ago. They're right back at the beginning. And these ancient copies exist in various libraries around the world today. So you can go and visit them in Rome, in Australia, in Dublin, and even in the British Library here in the UK. And so we can go and check and see whether the Bible we have today has changed. We don't have the original, but that doesn't frighten historians because we don't have the original of just about any great work of history. All the great historical works of antiquity, we don't have the original, and that's called the autograph. Take the writings of Caesar... The original has been lost. The closest one that we, that we have, it, it was like a thousand years afterwards. But when it comes to the New Testament, we've got so many right near to when the original was written or very shortly after. And that's really comforting to historians and to theologians to know that that's what we're looking at. So, yeah, we can see this time difference on this slide, how close they are to the original in time. So when we talk about Homer's Iliad... 
we're talking about a time difference here of around 400 years. With Plato, it's over 1,000 years, and the same with Caesar. But with the Gospels, we're talking literally decades. And the Gospels, so the Gospels stand up extraordinarily well when compared with ancient equivalent writing. And then there's a question of how many copies. How many witnesses are there to the original, and how close in time are they to the original? So when we're looking at the Greek New Testament, we're talking about thousands of early copies. Um, great. Um, so we're talking nearly 6,000 copies, and yet if we talk about an equivalent, again, like Homer's Iliad, we're talking about 1,700, or Plato, we're talking just over 200. So again, the New Testament stands up far better than any other historical documents. So these manuscripts are really good evidence for us in that what was originally written is what we're reading about today in our translation in English. And there's a process called textual criticism, which is a rigorous process of looking at and examining these documents and able to reconstruct or to construct what the New Testament said. And we can have faith and trust in this process because we can scrutinize it and look at it. Now, I hear you ask, was it usual, Viv, to have a period of 50 or 100 years before something got written down? Because nowadays, that's a really long time. For us, we think, oh, they wrote it so long afterwards. But actually, that was really normal at the time. Again, because it was, the, it was an oral tradition that they had. So while that person was alive, there was no need to write it down because they trusted in the opposite way that we do today. Completely opposite. They trusted something orally over something written. Whereas in our day and age, we just go, did someone tell you that? Or, you know, was it actually written in a book? It's a complete opposite mindset. But in the first century, they'd trust someone more on the fact that they were an eyewitness or it was coming directly from them. Whereas the written word, they just weren't so sure. So when the disciples started dying out, that's when they started writing things down. And so, the, again, the distance of 30 to 40 years is just not a headache at all for historians. Uh, whereas we don't work hard at that oral tr transmission because we have books, we have the printing press, we have computers. We don't work hard at being faithful and dedicated to someone speaking. But there's a whole realm of study on the traditions amongst Jews of which the Christians came out of, of how they went to the absolute ends of the earth in terms of effort to make sure that they were transmitting accurately what their teacher, what their rabbi said. And so they'd practice on each other over and over and over again. And this has come down through the ages of all the, the different rules that they had to make sure that they told the stories word for word as accurately, uh, accurately as they could. And it was considered a massive crime to even change or embellish any of the stories. So the stories that Jesus told, the parables, the actual narration of the events of his miracles, historians have great confidence in the early Christians who came out of Judaism with this tradition of speaking and telling it word for word as accurately as they could. So the, again, the 40-year period, it doesn't raise any eyebrows amongst historians. I don't know if any of you have chatted to any Muslims about this, and they will, prob they will often tell you, oh, the Bible that you have now... It's, there's so many textual variations, so you can't believe it. And this is when like, one manuscript says one thing, and then another one says something else slightly different. And so with the different versions of the New Testament, they, they will often tell you there are 200,000 variations 
and they're actually right. But what they'll fail to tell you is that it doesn't bother any historians at all because when we're talking about a spelling of a certain word, that counts as a textual variation. So if you've got the ancient Cassidia of Capernaum, for example, in one translation it might say it with one P, in another it might say two Ps, and that's counted as a textual variation or in word order. So if, for example, it says the disciples and Jesus went fishing, and then in another one it says Jesus and the disciples went fishing, that's um, a textual variation. Or it could be that there's a word missing, and it literally is, in some versions, it could be uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it could just say the Christ. And so tiny little things like that, and of the 200,000 variations in, in all of the five to 6,000 manuscripts, 99% of them make no difference whatsoever to the meaning of the text. They're just tiny little things, and that's really impressive to ancient historians of how actually accurate and careful and consistent the manuscripts are. So then I might hear you say, well, that's all very well having the written accounts of, of people who believed in Jesus, but what about other sources? It's all very well having Christians telling, telling you that this is accurate. So apparently from the late first century into the second century again, we have about six to seven non-Christian writers who wrote about Jesus in some form. The Two main ones you might have heard of, there's a Roman historian called Tacitus, and a Jewish historian called Josephus. And they write about Jesus and the early Christians in various ways. And if you look at all the non-Christian sources from those early centuries on Jesus, we can work out, completely without the Bible, that there was a man called Jesus, that he lived in Palestine, that he did things that were thought to be miraculous, that he had a following, that he was called the Christ, that he was arrested, he was tried under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified, and that there were reports of him rising from the dead. And we can get all of that from sources outside of the Bible, from people who weren't followers of Jesus. One scholar uh, called John Warwick Montgomery says that, to be skeptical of the resultant text of the New Testament books is to allow all of classical antiquity to slip into obscurity, for no documents of the ancient periods are, of the ancient period are as well attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Quite a statement, isn't it? I know I've concentrated more on the New Testament, but we can see this accuracy through something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't know whether any of you have heard of it, heard of them. The Dead Sea Scrolls, they were a whole heap of scrolls. And not just Bible scrolls, but there were things like hymns and commentaries on the Bible. And the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. And it was basically the equivalent of stumbling on a massive ancient library that included Old Testament books um, of the Bible. No, not New Testament. This was pre-New Testament. But all of the Old Testament books, all of them, except for Esther and Nehemiah, were found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. So they were all written before the New Testament. And the highly significant thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is that they were being dated to 150 BC, which was way earlier than any of the copies of the New Testament that we'd had before. And the brilliant thing for Christians and for Jews is that when you compared these Dead Sea Scrolls with the newer copies we had, even though there was a difference in a 1,000 years, 
there was hardly any difference in the translations. And so it was such confirmation that the way that the text had been copied was incredibly accurate. There's, there's so much more to read and discover about the historicity of the Bible. I know I've only covered a fraction of it, but please go and do some exploration for yourself. But the overwhelming evidence is that it is an historical, historically accurate document. So number two, everyone alive. That was the longest one. This is like downhill from now. So secondly, not only is the Bible historically accurate, it's also scientifically accurate. And God set up the laws of science, and he made sure that his word doesn't contradict the laws of science. Now, obviously, the Bible wasn't a scientific text. It's not like, oh, I can go and read the Bible and know how to build a rocket or anything like that. Um, But the Bible doesn't give bad science. Not once in over 1,600 years in which this book was written. In fact, it's always ahead of science. There are things in the Bible that the Bible said were true that we just discovered 100 years ago or 200 years ago. There's a a famous mathematician and astronomer, Johannes Kepler, and he said science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. And the one thing about truth is that it never changes. But the one thing about science is that it constantly changes. I don't know. There's there's nothing more worthless than an obsolete science book. I bet the science book that you had when you started secondary school, they're not even using nowadays. And a lot of things that we believed at one point are no longer believed and taught. There was in uh, 1861, there was a famous book that came out called... 51 incontrovertible proofs that the Bible is scientifically inaccurate. And the problem is today, 150 years later, you can't find a single scientist on the planet who would agree with any one of those incontrovertible facts. They've all been disproven now by science. For example, for thousands and thousands of years, people believed that the Earth was flat. It wasn't until Copernicus and Galileo and Columbus that people realized that it wasn't flat. And you, so you would expect the Bible to say that the earth is flat because that's what everyone believed at the time. So you'd expect that in the Bible, if it was man, written just by man, that it would say all sorts of things that related to the people's beliefs at the time. But instead, it says the exact opposite. And this is a verse I stumbled across today. Again, it's open to interpretation, but Isaiah 40, verse 22, it says, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. How incredible is that? 2,600 years ago, the Bible says the earth is a sphere, and yet nobody believed that because they hadn't discovered that by science. But God said it was true regardless of whether we believed it at the time. Another example is thousands and thousands of years before the bubonic plague, God said in Leviticus 13 to put an infected person in quarantine for seven days. And that's thousands of years before we knew about germs. God is saying, here's how you take care of people who have infectious diseases. You put them outside a camp for seven days, and if they're still sick, you keep them out there for another seven days. And nobody understood quarantine because nobody understood germs. But again, God was right. And there's just so many um, stories in the Bible or the ways that God set it up that we had no idea why he was setting it up like that. But now with hindsight, we can see that actually he was way ahead of science. So that's number two. 
Number three, it's we know we can trust the Bible because it's prophetically accurate. Now, what does that mean? It means that the promises and the predictions in the Bible have come true. The Bible is literally filled with thousands and thousands of promises when God says such and such is going to happen at such and such a time. uh, There are over 300 prophecies in the Bible about Jesus as the Messiah, up to a thousand years before he was born. Over a thousand year period, 300 prophecies said things like, when he'll be born or where he will be born, this is how he'll be born, this is how he'll die. And I mentioned a few weeks ago that the odds of any one person fulfilling these 300 prophecies are one in a hundred quadrillion. So the Bible's prophetically accurate. Number four. See, I told you the rest of it was going to go quite quickly. Fourthly, it's thematically unified. And what I mean by that is that it has the same theme throughout the entire book from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation. It's a bit like what Joseph was just saying. It's the same theme of redemption from Genesis right the way through. And it all points to Jesus as the ultimate rescuer of of humankind. But it's actually a collection of 66 books divided into two sections, 39 in the old, 27 in in the new. And the Bible is written over 1,600 years by more than 40 authors. And so many of them were from different socioeconomic backgrounds. So you have kings like King David or King Solomon. You have a diplomat like Isaiah writing. But you also have seriously poor people like Amos. Apparently, he had one of the dirtiest, lowest jobs in, in history, uh, in his society at the time. And he was the dresser of sycamore fig trees. Who knew? And he helped write the Bible. And then we have fishermen, or we have tent makers. And on top of that, the Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And it's written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. And this is the thing that blows my mind, is that they didn't know each other. How do you think that they all got the same story? How, did they, how possibly did they link up and get this incredible narrative arc that we have in the Bible today? The different books weren't even collected in one book until a thousand years after they died. So it's miraculous that the theme is the same. Karen Starrock is going to be preaching next week, and she's going to be talking about the overarching narrative of the Bible, which is going to be brilliant. So I'm not going to steal her thunder, but the story of redemption throughout the whole book is just stunning. Fifthly, are we still awake? Great. Fifthly, it's confirmed by Jesus. Jesus trusted the Bible. And you might hear people say, you know, well, I trust what Jesus said, but I'm not sure about the other guys. Well, Jesus trusted the rest of the Bible, and he proclaimed the book as a unique book above all others. There's a beautiful passage in the, in, in the message version in Matthew 5:18, And it says, Jesus said, don't suppose for a minute that I've come to demolish the scriptures, either God's law or the prophets. I'm not here to demolish, but to complete I'm going to put it all together, pull it all together in a vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Long after stars burn out 
and earth wears out, God's law will be alive and working. I love that. I love that language. And he's constantly referring back to the Old Testament throughout his life. I think, I, I, don't, I haven't counted up all the different books that he mentions, but there are so many different books in the Old Testament that he mentions um, all throughout the Gospels. And so if Jesus is who he says he is, then we have to deal with the whole Bible because Jesus himself talks about it authoritatively. Sickly. Come on. The Bible has survived against all the odds. The Bible is the most despised book, most derided, the most denied, the most disputed, the most dissected, the most debated, the most outlawed, the most destroyed, the most banned book in history ever. Millions of people have died because they refused to give up their Bible. It's still illegal in some countries today. If you're discovered taking your Bible into North Korea, you can get arrested and put in jail and sometimes killed for it. The Bible has been under attack for century after century. Voltaire, the famous French philosopher, he was a brilliant man, but he wrote a number of tracts deriding the Bible. And Voltaire made a very famous statement in which he said, in the 18th century, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. After Voltaire died, the irony was that his homestead was used as the book depository for the French Bible Society. They actually sold Bibles out of his house. It says in 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's just an extraordinary book to have survived despite the dramatic attempts to destroy it. Drum roll. And seventhly, okay, come on. This is the most subjective one, but it's the one I've seen personally the most. And that's that it has transforming power. It can radically change the lives of people. I've seen it change people's lives you know, in this church or in the wider community. And I know for me, it's like such a source of encouragement and comfort and stability. Did anyone get given a Gideon Bible when they were at school or find one in a, in a hotel room? My parents are Gideons, so I love the Gideons. Um, and they used to tell us of so many times when, when somebody would look up uh, or would come across a Gideon Bible that they were given sort of years ago or they find it randomly in their hotel room. And do you remember at the front of it, they have like little helps? Anyone remember the little kind of table of contents at the front? And there was things like help in time of need or forgiveness or um, comfort. And they used to tell us of so many people that had been impacted by the verses that they found, they, they just had to follow Jesus after it because it just spoke right into the situation. There's so many times that I read the Bible and, this, and a verse kind of like pops out the page and like smacks you over the head. And, you know, it just speaks right into a situation that you've literally just been asking God for or you've just been praying about. Somebody was just telling us today about how they read the Bible and he literally dropped the Bible because he was like, are you kidding me? I've just been praying that and I've just literally read it. 
when, uh, you know, Steve talked last week about meditating on verses and just like chewing them over and over and over again. Um, like one of my favorite verses, this is a freebie for you. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and request, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Like when you're feeling anxious, learn that verse. Repeat it over and over and over again until it transforms your mind. It's so much more than information. The words have power. They actually have the power to transform us, to transform our thinking, to challenge us, but ultimately to, challenge our, to, to change our characters and to make us more like Jesus, which is the goal. So in coming down to land, you've done really well for keeping looking awake anyway. Um, as I've been preparing and researching for this talk, I've just personally been gripped afresh with the power of this, the power of this, just not only historically accurate book, but just so much more than this, that it's a precious book, which is God-breathed, that people have died over, where, where the story running through is one of God rescuing his people over and over again. How much, how much do we need rescuing? And then how much is all in the overarching story of God continually having to rescue his people? And I guess the challenge I want to leave you with, if, if it's true, if it is what it claims to be, then how much are we engaging with it? I started watching YouTube clips of uh, people in the Chinese church receiving their very first Bible and, the, and just weeping over it. And yet how often am I like 20 copies gathering dust on my shelf? It's just really challenging, isn't it? Where people are valuing it. They literally like tear a page out and then they pass that on to the next person because they only have one copy to share around them. We're desperate for God to speak to us. I often hear up the front, I just can't hear God. I can't hear him talking to me. Top tip, he's written a load of stuff in here. Like seriously, this is one of the main ways he speaks. And sometimes we're just waiting for this audible voice of God, but he's already spoken and he wants to speak to you today through the Bible. And I, I pray that we would just be gripped, just for the, whether it's for the first time or whether it's, again, just with a love for his word, just to go deeper and to meet Jesus in these pages. And for those of you who know Jesus, I, I'd encourage you to ask each other, just what verses are impacting you at the moment? Talk to each other about the scriptures. Talk to each other and go, what are you reading at the moment? How is it changing you? How is it changing how you think? Just talk to each other about the scriptures and challenge each other in that. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, he's, he's real. He speaks today. He's, writ, he's a historical figure who died and rose again, and he wants to bring you life. And try starting to read it. As a community, we're... Um, re oh, look, there's my dream and doodle card. Ah, I knew I had it up here. Um, as a community, we're, we're trying to read through the New Testament in a year with a five-by-five-by-five five five plan. Anyone doing it here? Amazing. It's, it's brilliant, isn't it? Just digging deeper into the book of Mark. And I'd really encourage you just to start there. If you haven't jo joined that little plan already, it's not too late. I think there's some paper copies at the back. But just um, 
one chapter a day reading about the life of Jesus. Mark is a great place to start if you're nervous about engaging with the Bible or don't, really don't know where to start. Just pause before you read it and just go, God, come and speak to me today. Come and make your word come alive. I'm going to ask the band to come up again. And we're just going to thank God for his word. We're going to thank him for what he's done in giving us the record um, of this story that we get to be a part of. And if you'd like prayer for anything, the, do you know the God of Moses is here tonight? The God who parted the Red Sea is here tonight. The God who rose Jesus from the dead is here tonight. Jesus, where he prayed for people for, uh, to be completely healed and set free and delivered, he wants to heal you tonight. He's here with his power and his transforming power. And he's the same God that's in here that is actually here tonight. That's who we're meeting with. That's who we're worshipping. And so let's stand and, um, and thank God for all that he's given us. But if you want prayer for anything, turn to somebody next to you or come down the front. And we would love to pray for you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.